A restless generation We're turning over every stone Hoping to find salvation In a world that's left us cold Can we get back to the altar? Back to the arms of our first love There's only one way to the Father And He's calling out to us To the captive it looks like freedom To the orphan it feels like home To the skeptic it might sound crazy To believe in a God who loves In a world where our hearts are breaking And we're lost in the mess we've made Like a blinding light in the dead of night It's the gospel, the gospel that makes a way well, thank you, Franco. I appreciate it. Uh, I hope everybody had a nice New Year's. It was a nice time off. Uh, everybody take your Bibles and go to John chapter 3. Very familiar verse, John chapter 3. We're going to be uh, talking about the gospel tonight. As I'm sure everybody here knows, the gospel means what? The good news. The good news. So John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, which should be translated only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's just beautiful. So there's no other verse in the Bible that so succinctly summarizes God's relationship with humanity and the way of salvation. God loves mankind so much that he gave his son to save us from death and to give us eternal life. And in this verse, we see the very purpose of the gospel. So the gospel, the term gospel, is uniquely Christian. It's used 93 times in the New Testament and zero times in the Old Testament. So it's uniquely Christian, it's uniquely New Testament. The word gospel itself comes from the Old English, which is goad spell, goad spell, which means good story or good message. In the Greek, it's the Greek word euangelion, and we get the word evangelism or evangelist. And so this is the good news, the gospel. Specifically, what is the good news? Well, the good news is the good news of Christ's salvation of the world. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for our sins. That our salvation, eternal life, and home in heaven are all guaranteed through Christ. The key word there being guaranteed. That we simply cannot earn our salvation. The work of redemption and justification has already been completed on the cross. That we, who were former enemies of God, have been reconciled by the blood of Christ and adopted into this family of God, and that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther said, the world bears the gospel a grudge because the gospel condemns the religious wisdom of the world. Jealous for its own religious views, the world in turn charges the gospel with being a subversive and licentious doctrine, offering to God and man a doctrine to be persecuted as the worst plague on earth. As a result, we have this paradoxical situation. The gospel supplies the world with the salvation of Jesus Christ, peace of conscience, and every blessing. Just for that, the world abhors the gospel. 
And that's something. God gives his very best to the world, and the world hates him for it. It's amazing. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and this is Paul the Apostle, and he says in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So you see right at the core of this gospel is faith. Another way you can translate faith is, I think it's a better translation actually, is trust, that we take God at his word, that God promises us, and we take him at his word. We believe what he says. So the gospel is God's power unto salvation. It's within the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed. So why isn't the gospel good news to everyone? Why is it good news just to some people? Well, if you don't care about God's righteousness, then it wouldn't make sense that you would find the work of Christ good news, right? Oswald Chambers, he said, there is nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man or the carnal Christian. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of sin. Isn't that something? It says that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And you have to think about it. This is kind of a personal question. Why would I be ashamed of the gospel? I think that's a good question we all need to ask ourselves. Why would I be ashamed of the gospel? Perhaps I'm not seeing sin as dark as it should be seen. Perhaps I'm not seeing God's righteousness as bright as his righteousness should be seen. Perhaps I'm letting the words of men have more influence over my thinking than the words of God. Go to Romans chapter 10, Romans 10. See, there's a lot of Christians out there, quote unquote, but I don't hear a lot of Christians holding forth the word, holding forth the gospel as they should. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, most of us know these verses all the way back to when we first became believers. Um, but I've always been amazed at talking to other Christians and, and how often I come across Christians who have never heard this verse before. I mean, as hard as that is to imagine, um, you can tell it on their face when you start talking and you say Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they look at you kind of funny. And then you actually quote it to them, and they still don't know what you're talking about. Verse 10, it says, For it is with the heart, with your heart, that you believed and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts, and there's that word, trusts in him, will never be put to shame. That encapsulates our faith, doesn't it? Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It's simple trust in the Lord. Verse 12, but there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference. We're all under sin. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all those who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And then Paul asks a series of questions. Verse 14, how then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? 
And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. As Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you're going to move the gospel, you've got to be willing to preach it. It's a requirement. If a person is going to hear the gospel, then somebody's going to have to tell them. There was a poem that it goes, God has no hands but our hands with which to give his people bread. God has no feet but our feet with which to walk among the dead. We say that we are his and he is ours. Deeds are the proof of this, not words. And these are the proving hours. We have got to be willing to tell others the good news. We need to be able to engage people and ask questions. And one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind when we do tell other people about the good news is we're not telling them the good news so that we can swell the ranks of TLTF. That's not the purpose of speaking the word. Our purpose is to reconcile people to God. If we go out with the intention on, you know, swelling the ranks of TLTF, that's not going to be a message with power. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So this is the ministry of reconciliation, and God has committed it to us, to men. It goes on, he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And in verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was descended from David. And through the spirit of holiness was declared to be, I'm sorry, declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the resurrection from the dead, specifically Christ's resurrection from the dead, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he raised him from the dead. In Philippians, it talks about that God exalted him and gave him a name which was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So the gospel, this good news, is a story of victory and power. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. This is Paul again, and he's saying, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. When a preacher forgets his commissioning, when he forgets that he's a messenger, 
and that the message is about Christ and not about him, his message gets affected and it gets emptied of power. There was this quote I came across online tonight as I was going through my teaching. It says, may I beg you carefully to judge every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his elocutionary powers, not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this, does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? That's the only criteria that we judge people for or on. Does this minister preach the gospel? Verse 18, it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. This gospel, or as it's called here, this message of the cross to the world, it's foolishness. It's simply ludicrous. I mean, this whole idea that a man, a savior, dies on a cross, he's raised from the dead, and is seated at God's right hand in power, and he reconciles men to God is madness. This quote by J.C. Ryle, I will look at the cross of Christ, and there I will see the love of Christ constraining me to live not unto myself, but unto him. There I see that I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I am bound by the most solemn obligations to glorify Jesus with body and spirit, which are his. There I see that Jesus gave himself for me, not only to redeem me from all iniquity, but also to purify me and make me one of a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He bore my sins in his own body on a tree, that I, being dead unto sin, should live unto righteousness. Ah, reader, there is nothing more sanctifying as a clear view of the cross of Christ. It crucifies the world unto us, and us unto the world. How can we love sin when we remember that because of our sin, Jesus died. Surely none ought to be so holy as the disciples of a crucified Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, and look in verse 7. It says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. Lavished. I love that word. I also love the word redemption redemption, that God has redeemed us. I was thinking about Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but it says, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9, it says, and he made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit or which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, there is no greater witness of the gospel than someone who was overwhelmed with their sin and has been forgiven and redeemed. I thought about the, um, the story in the book of Luke where it says that two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. He said, God, I thank you, and I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector I'm standing next to. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think there's far too much self-merit in the body of Christ. I think one of the things that we should wake up to is this notion that we are sinners, and that it's through God's redemption and it's his grace and his mercy that we can walk out with our heads held high every day. It's pr the pride of man that we should say anything to God, but God, have mercy on us. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said, the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty to ashes and the garment of praise to the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. I think a lot of times people don't see the need for a savior because their God has been brought down to human level. <laughs> they don't see that they actually have sin that they need to be delivered from. Right in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, I think in the human soul that we have to have certain things that are sacred, certain things that we hold high and in high regard. I think about Isaiah when he saw the Lord, that the Lord was high and lifted up. And I think that as we defile our God, as we bring him down, we bring ourselves down with him. 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. So Paul here is getting ready to talk to the Corinthians about what's fundamental to his entire epistle. This is an epistle of reproof. But Paul's saying, look, this is of first importance, what I'm about to tell you. It's fundamental to everything. He goes on to say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to the more than 500 of the brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as one abnormally born. That's kind of an odd translation. Abnormally born means that he was untimely born, that Paul was, you know, that he came along after everybody else had. It goes on in verse 9, it says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even desire to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now listen to this, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me is not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was given with me. Isn't that beautiful? 
for the grace of God that we are what we are. It says, for whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. So he's, in engineering we call this, he's establishing his baseline. <laughs> he's saying, look, this is what we've been preaching to you, and this is what you've been believing, right? And we, are we square with that? Everybody's nodding their head. They're saying, yes, we are. He's reminding them that this is the gospel. Verse 12, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead? Isn't that amazing? So you had these Corinthians who acknowledged who, I mean, they, they knew what the doctrine was. They knew what the basis of uh, the gospel was, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. But then they started going around preaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been risen or raised. And if Christ has not been raised, what? Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's something. That without Christ's resurrection, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no Christianity. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him from the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised. I mean, that makes sense. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or worthless. You are still in your sins. That's something. Remember Romans where it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But if there's no resurrection, there's no redemption. Verse 18, and those who are fallen asleep in Christ are lost. All those people that you know who have died in Christ, they're lost. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, what does this mean? Well, think about it. I mean, are you, uh, you going to win a popularity contest for being a Christian? Probably not. I mean, think about Christians. It is, as far as a religion goes, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the entire world. So if we're standing for Christ, but there's no resurrection, then that means there's no hope. So we're being persecuted for nothing. That's what Paul is teaching them. You don't have to turn there, but John 16, 20 says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Isn't that something? If a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. So with you now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and I will, or, and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. See, that's the greatness of a hope, that we have to endure tough things in this life, but one day it's going to be as if a, a woman who, she had a child, and as soon as she had that child, that, that pain was gone. But if you take that away, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we're of all men most miserable. But here's the declaration, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are, are fallen asleep. For since Christ came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Isn't that something? Now, did you notice that? By death, that death came by one man or by a man, and resurrection from the dead also came by 
a man, a man. And this is a simple, straightforward statement. This is a verse I like to show my Trinitarian friends. That is a comparison between a man and a man, not a comparison between a man and a God-man. It's a man and a man, right? Verse 23, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end comes when he hands the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This is a, a reference back to Psalm 110, uh, which says that the Lord said unto my Lord, sitteth my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you'll recall that Peter quoted the same verse on the day of Pentecost, when he talked about how David had not ascended to heaven, but the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So look in verse 26. And the last enemy, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has put, been put under his feet, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under his feet. 28. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Look down in verse 33. We're going to wrap it up here. It says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are, are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body they come in? How foolish. And then Paul goes on to explain. He gives the explanation for the earthly and heavenly bodies and the natural bodies and spiritual bodies. And then he says, in finishing, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, before a person can inherit the kingdom of God, that person has to be changed. Look at verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will all be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been closed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death was swallowed up in victory. Isn't that beautiful? Where is death? Or where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves always to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All right. So that's what I wanted to share. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you, Father, for blessing this congregation. I thank you, Father, for the wonderfulness of your gospel. Uh, Father, it, it is the word that has redeemed each one of us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can be faithful ministers of that gospel and to preach it 
And I thank you, Heavenly Father, for just your word moving throughout this world. So I thank you for all these things. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so Franco is going to play a song by uh, Rick Stevens to finish this out. So go for it, Franco. It's the good news for us all It's greater than religion It's the power of the cross So can we get back to the altar Back to the arms of our first love